Hi, y'all. We are here at Frankie's Bar, a.k.a. the set of Alleged Lesbian Activities, with some of the creators of this fantastic, long-awaited show that's been running for the last four weeks here at the Theater on St. Claude. Let's check in. Um, let's share our names and what pronouns you used, what your role was on this production, and anything else you'd like to uh, folks at home to know about your work outside of Last Call. My name is Rachel Lee. I go by she, her, and hers. I was a founder of the project and was involved in interviewing folks and creating the podcast. And outside of Last Call, I'm involved with Loud, New Orleans Queer Youth Theater. Um, my name is Indy Mitchell. Um, I use they and he pronouns. And I am one of the co-directors of the production, as well as a core organizer. I've done like some work doing interviews, um, and I'm one of the performers. Outside of Last Call, I'm also involved with Wow, the Career Youth Theater Company, and I'm currently like developing a larger project called Black Ballet. Um, I'm Chanel, or Nell Mills. Um, my pronouns are she, her, and hers. On this production, I was the set designer and one of the co-writers. Uh, my name is Bear Abair. I uh, use she, her, or they, them. And I was a co-writer of this piece. And I'm also an organizer with Last Call. Outside of this project, I'm also a, a co-artistic director of another theater company called New Noise. And I'm also a yoga teacher. My name is Bonnie Gable, um, and I use they, them pronouns. Co-directed the piece with Indy, and I'm an organizer on this project. I was in it from the beginning with Rachel. Outside of Last Call, I'm an ensemble member of New Noise. <laughs> I uh, work with Doombug Productions, and I'm an educator and a theater maker around town. So the process that led to creating this show began over three years ago and has been a slow burn to build up to this fantastic production. Can you walk us through the stages of developing the performance and how did you center intergenerational relationships in that process? Yeah, I mean, I think, I feel like I've told this story so many times, uh, but first, Rachel Lee asked me if I wanted to direct a drag king musical, and I said yes, um, and then she was like, it's gonna be about Charlene's, and so uh, we started doing research. Uh, as soon as we started talking with folks and hearing stories, we realized the importance of those stories, and we started doing that really heavily, talking with people and listening and sharing stories, trying to figure out ways to amplify the stories. And we still did creative exploration. There were a couple times where we invited a whole bunch of people into the room and we just threw cake at the wall creatively together. There was a lot of dancing and some comedy and some fake paper beards that came out of some of those early <laughs> creative intensives that didn't end up in the, in the actual performance that we're doing now. But it was a couple years of kind of, of listening and, and trying things and trying to figure out what this needed to be. At some points we were like, maybe it's just a cabaret or maybe it's, other things and and we were doing these cabarets at that time we were doing these fundraisers called the Lavender's Jukebox and those I feel like have actually have been really influential in what the show ended up being after that Rachel started collaborating with Bree and Peter on this podcast the podcast was really beautiful and touching and so we turned one of the episodes of the podcast we did a dance piece to kind of go along with it um, and that's when Indy
that was, I feel like, a huge turning point in the creative process. Yeah, yeah so that was, like, about a year ago, over a year ago now. At the time, I was mostly doing work with an African company in town called Nkafo, traditional African dance company. And I've been learning a lot and, like, just, like, getting my feet wet in New Orleans. And it was, like, super straight <laughs> and, like, super, like, really traditional gender roles and stuff. And at the time, I was like, oh, I need to do something gay. I need to do, like, anything that's, like, creative and, like, queer. It was kind of by chance that I ended up, like, coming on and I thought it was just going to be on for like this one piece and then from there we like had like a summer session of like developing and like more creative play with me and a few other folks in the room and that's that that summer kind of like was like another big heavy seed of like what the show is now that's when we really started to think about okay like cabaret and time and like what happens in between time and like what's in the past and what's in the present and we started to come up with like a loose structure of like how the things were starting to look. From there I realized too, oh, this is a really important project and what I was identifying was that, oh, this is like great and stuff and a lot of the interviews and the things and the people in the space were super white. For me it felt important to like push this project to like be more inclusive of like black voices and like black elder voices and like black bodies present in general and I think that like there was an attempt in doing that and that's part of how I got on in the beginning so from there I feel like a lot of things shifted and that's kind of when my role started to shift with the with the work too and I became more of like an outside eye instead of just like a person who was like performing and helping to create the things. Oh, hi I'm Erin I'm a performer and an organizer on Last Call, and I have a question. Jinju mentioned something about intergenerational something, right? So, like, we have this cohort of people that we've spoken to, and if we don't, like, actually really reach out to them, they won't know that we're doing things. And I think as a project overall, we make a concentrated effort um, when we do have events to really reach out to the people who helped us start the project by sharing their story. And we want them here to continue that. And we want younger queers here to see them and see their reactions during the show, like during the Anita Bryant scene, where there are people there who were at the march that we're talking about in the scene at the same time. And they're saying, oh yeah, I heard her words in real time and it affected me this way. Once you get to the point where you're creating the show, it's a devised theater process. And devising is a term that's familiar to theater people, um, but not really to the rest of the world. So could y'all talk about what devising means for this process and what did that look like in the rehearsal room as you were creating this show? I think some of it has been um, in devising everybody's voice is valued and everybody's in the room as a collaborator so it's not like there's a there's not a writer writing the whole script and giving it to a team of actors and a director's telling the actors what to do it's like the ideas can kind of come from all areas from people in the rehearsal room from writers outside the room from designers from other folks involved in the project and this piece feels we were trying to value all of those voices equally in the process. And so what that meant was we went through this one iteration in January where the show had a bunch of different voices and ideas in it because we took pieces that different folks made um, and strung them together in, in what we thought kind of made an arc and kind of tried to put them together. Indy and I worked a lot on that. 
And but it still looks like kind of different pieces. And then one of the big things that Nell did when she came on is help to refine that, string it together, help to put it in one voice and make it spark. I feel like one of the both like the beauty and the difficulty of working as a writer in a devising process is that um, the writing doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's like happening at least early on in the process. Like I was writing before things were more fully developed and um, I would write a thing and then it would go to rehearsal and then it maybe wouldn't work. Or I would write a thing and then I wouldn't know that like, because I had gotten an assignment, but then like three rehearsals had happened since then before I fulfilled the assignment and then like, oh, actually the scene needs to be more like this now. And so there's a lot of that kind of like back and forth where it's like, oh, and, and that's not, uh, I don't say that to say like, oh, somebody should have told me something differently, but just to say that like, you can't know what's happening in the rehearsal room. And so like, you know, magic happens there, um, you know, and, and things are improvised and things are coming together in this kind of more collaborative way that's that's really different than the writer's process which is much more sort of for me anyway it's like singular and solitary and uh, and so it's just kind of like it's kind of like bumper cars maybe like for me like just being like oh here's a thing oh does that fit oh no okay can we keep navigating around each other like how are these things fitting together so I came on after the showing in January and I was involved in the show in January as a set designer, and um, I have a playwriting background. Um, and so to watching the show, it was very obvious that it was a devised show, um, being like an impartial audience member. And one of my biggest challenges as as the writer coming in was, was making everything make sense and like making the journey that we're taking you on like believable and coherent, I guess. My job, I realized, wasn't really to ask why things were there. It was just kind of to make them make sense um, and make them fit into the story. So there's this one scene, one of the best scenes, if I do say so myself in the script now, <laughs> where Frankie smashes his Afro wig off of this white performer who's doing a very lackluster, offensive, well, I wouldn't say lackluster because she actually does a great job of it, but an offensive, um, <laughs> performance of a Betty Davis song. And um, so in the in the first script, um, it's a great scene, you know, beautiful, uh, you know, drag, lip sync, work from indie here, but it made no sense. It made absolutely no sense. And every time I saw the show, I just wanted to like stand up and be like, why is this here? And so actually I talked to Indy and I was like, Indy, like, why is this here? Why, like, why Frankie, like, why are you coming from behind the bar and, like, totally getting out of character and, like, doing this completely opposite thing than people would expect from the character that, that Frankie has been created? And the answer is really that Indy, I mean, do you want to tell the answer? Indy, Indy found a zebra print bodysuit at, <laughs> at a thrift store, very fabulous zebra print bodysuit at a thrift store. And they were like, okay, word, I want to do a Betty Davis number to honor her and the zebra print was perfect so that's the whole reason why it was in the show <laughs> and so for me it wasn't me asking like so i stopped asking why and just worked on making it make sense with the story and also just it's not strictly about like me finding <laughs> that like bodysuit that was like an assignment that all of the performers had at the time was to create a cabaret act and we were and I guess we like knew at the point at that time that I was like Frankie, who was like the bar owner or whatever, but we were just 
playing with the things. It was like part of like the divisive work too, or part of the like improv work that we were doing too. And that cabaret act was one of the attempts to put, um, to show something modern happening, something, and that was like coming from a lot of Indies experiences going to parties and bars. So I think there's an interesting thing within January, there were all of these things, and I know we've talked about this, but there were all of these things put into the show and they were like experiments in different forms in different ideas in different ways of working and we knew that they weren't all going to work and we knew that they didn't all match but we were like what are people's reactions to this and it's what's so amazing about what you did now is that you were able to keep so much of it and make it make sense yeah i'm glad that y'all hit on that scene because it is one of the most powerful scenes in the show and particularly in how what's happening on stage is commented on by the audience's reactions and how that being different every night shifts the uh, the tone of the room. Mm -hmm. Could y'all talk a little bit about how audiences reacted to this um, scene and, and how that affected y'all as you were uh, performing or watching? That scene was the scene that I was the most, the scene that I was most worried about, which makes sense that it's like one of my favorites because it was the scariest um i think and because my fear was that white people in the audience would see that and they wouldn't get it and they would just boo frankie and not understand um where i was trying to go with it and the really beautiful thing is that so a lot of the work that i did do in the rewrite was bringing in more of like our voices as like the young like queers community like here in new orleans now like bring that in more and so for me, as a black person, black queer person who goes to parties, like we've all been in the situation where, you know, you're having a great time and drinking, whatever, 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 and all of a sudden some fucked up, some messed up stuff happens. And, you know, it could be like a white person in an Afro wig, which happens all the time, or like a white person in dreadlocks, or like, you know, just a countless amount of things that can happen. And the the thing that's so hard in situations like that is that Sometimes you feel, especially if you don't have a community with you, you feel like, you feel really alone because people don't understand what's wrong with it. Like white people don't understand what's wrong with me wearing like an Afro wig. Like why doesn't it, like, like what's wrong with it? And so to put that in the show and to watch the audience's reactions, like the black folks is awesome because they're like, yes, like cheering for that. And, and when it first happens, when Karen first comes out, the black folks and a lot of the conscious white folks, like I, they turned to me before and been like, what is, what are you doing here? Like, what is happening? Like ready to like, because it's like, you know, it's like you have that armor, you're waiting to be offended. You're waiting, you're waiting for that to happen in any situation as a person of color in this country. Like you're waiting for some fucked up thing to happen. So it happens and then it's like, oh, here we go again. Like it's in here. But then there's that really empower and like empowering moment of, Frankie being like, mm -mm, not in my bar, and snatches the wig off, and some white people, they are just like, what happened? I don't understand what happened. It's like, it's something viscerally feels wrong with, with this white person in the Afro wig, but I don't know what it is. And so for me, it, it was an attempt to turn a mirror onto half of the audience. Well, it was for me to turn a mirror on all of the audience, really, for the white people to like really think about to be introspective and think about the next time you're at a party, the next time you're in a situation and that happens, like don't leave it on the black person to come and like 
come from behind their bar and not and like stop what they're doing to like correct this situation like privacy in that moment chose not to step up and it's like that and like people can see they didn't step up and that was a messed up thing for them not to step up so it's kind of a call for like white people to step up and it's also for me as a person who has snatched many a wigs <laughs> at a party before it's an empowering scene for me to be like to for other people to see and to be like oh okay well I'm a, I'm a be like Frankie. I'm a, I'm a snatch a wig the next time I see it. Like, and it's okay. And it's like not this like insane like. Well, it's not this like out of control thing. Um, so yeah. And uh, totally, that did happen during the run of the show. Our stage manager went to a bar, and multiple white folks are wearing Afro wigs, and she damn snatched them off. But I did feel like it was all connected to getting to see mm -hmm. that night after night. We're listening backstage to hear who's excited at the top of the act. What happens? at the moment where privacy doesn't step up, where's the confusion, what happens when Frankie takes that wig, and what happens when Frankie is doing their performance. And every night was different. Like, as the person performing that, um, like, there's one night in particular that stood out to me where it was mostly, I think it was a Thursday night, and Thursday nights were, for the whole four <laughs> weeks, was pretty, like, Chill. chill you know people chill. like it was not very rowdy on a Thursday night <laughs> ever um and there's one Thursday where it was literally all white people in the audience like maybe like two black people in the audience um and it was just like silence <laughs> just like complete silence um in that moment when like usually there's like some like reactions or some cheers or something and that's when I really like appreciated like having like a supporting cast member like out on the stage with me like Nia who plays Janice in the show is there and like that night she was just like yes and just like <laughs> pumping me up so much and I like super needed that it's like an intense thing to do I mean even though like I've snatched plenty of wigs in my life too but like never on stage <laughs> never on stage as like a performance thing the audience definitely impacts it <laughs> and like makes the shows like what they are because thinking of the night that we brought um, all the youth, like, so we invited, like, the loud queer youth to come, and also, like, Breakout came on that same night, too, and, like, the difference between, like, that Thursday and that, like, night where it was, like, mostly <laughs> young people with, like, a sprinkle of, like, elders in the audience, it was just, like, completely different. So there's another scene that stands out to me that I want to get behind the scenes on, which is when um, Frankie and Privacy, who is the host of the cabaret show portrayed by Hannah Pepper Cunningham. Um, they have an on ongoing conflict throughout the show around the police presence that's coming to Frankie's bar because of Privacy's cabaret. And um, it comes to a head towards the end of the show and Frankie is telling Privacy off about it and Privacy reacts um, by turning to the audience and calling for a march and sort of redirecting that uh, frustration from Frankie into let's come together, let's unify, let's have a march, and that segues into this big musical number about the um, Anita Bryant march. Into this big musical number um, that eventually brings all of the characters up on stage and we uh, see them singing this song, we'll fight for the right to be gay, while uh, Frankie's still over at the bar um, looking on skeptically um, and communicating non-verbally with some of the black performers who uh, 
some of whom end up leaving the number um, because of seeing Frankie's reaction. It's a powerful scene. There's so much going on in it. And I'm wondering if y'all can take us through the iterations of that scene, because it was very different in January, um, how it first came about, and then how Nellie came in and reworked some of it and what you were going for with that scene. Yeah, I think that there was a, a sense that the Anita Bryant march had come up in almost every interview that we did in the initial set of interviews. It was like a thing that lots of people had talked about. And so there was a sense that that story needed to be acknowledged and honored in the show. I, I really love the way that you explained, like not questioning why, but just making sense of things because um, I wasn't trying to make sense of things. I was just like, in the for the January iteration, it was just like, let's just keep generating all the material and put it up there. Brian Coogan and I, who's a great uh, piano player and musician, uh, sat in his house one afternoon and uh, we had done a bunch of initial kind of internet research and watched a lot of videos of Anita Bryant and watched get a pie in her face on national television which is a really people should go watch that video if you haven't seen that it's, it's pretty amusing um and so we just sort of like wrote these we wrote basically two songs one of which is still in the show and one of which has been replaced by a, a song that hannah pepper wrote the um the, the Anita, i don't know what that one's the called Brian ballad. the ballad of Anita. oh it's still oh, yeah, called ballad of anita i think Bryan. the original was also anyway so hannah's version of the ballad of anita Bryan is what's there now but um but yeah we just we just sort of wrote a thing that both tried to like tell the story of Anita Bryant in the ballad of Anita Bryant and then also tried to capture that spirit of the time which was like in the 70s where it really wasn't okay to be gay you would get fired you would get um, harassed you could you know lose your housing there were all these real social penalties systemic penalties for being out and so taking to the streets in that way was a really risky thing for people to do and so just trying to um, make that visible and, and honor that. And then in like the, the hole that we left for it in the dramaturgy, you put it in a interesting spot. The second act is much heavier than the first. And that, that was one of the, it's like a chicken and egg thing. Like we're like putting things together without having the material, the writers are writing without knowing. And so all of a sudden this like really campy number shows up in this spot that it becomes, we're like, oh, the tone of this is different now. Um, and that was in some ways because of like where it fell in the show, and in, in other ways it was because of the ideas that Indy and Hannah Pepper Cunningham, who plays Empty Privacy, came up with about what what would happen during I Will Fight for the Right to Be Gay. Which is, they had the idea that, well, there was this tension where it's like, this march, we knew a lot of people went to it, we knew that like all the white people we talked to went to it, and we were like, we're not really sure um, at that point, we were like, we don't really know if this if this march was all white, if this march was, in, if there were like a few people of color there, if there weren't any people of color there, if it was a really integrated march. And we were seen some photographs, and we were like, we think this is a pretty white thing. And also this idea that we have to take to the streets, that that's where we have to be, and that's where all this action can happen, and that like being gay is the thing that we have to fight um, super hard for because it's the like the pinnacle of our identity. We're talking about how some of that is wrapped up in whiteness. And so in the first iteration, um, all, all of the black performers left the stage during that number. But we didn't really explain why that was happening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that was like a tricky moment. We were cause, and I think Nell's writing also like helped that too. Um, cause at that point, privacy and Frankie are like 
at a pretty intense, like, like tense place. Um, and they're like downright fighting, basically. Um, and I think like that matching that up with like Anita Bryant and like um, the realities that that was mostly a white like march, like and the people who we talked to like afterwards and or like the the few people who I've interviewed about Anita Bryant who are like black elders were kind of just like, oh yeah, like that was a thing, but like we had other things that we were thinking about. We weren't necessarily like out there, like that wasn't like like what we were doing and like how we were fighting. We were fighting for like other stuff. So trying to like figure out like how do we like show that nuance and um, and that decision like for Frankie to to not go. Um, Frankie, I guess Frankie was like never going up on the on the stage to march because even like in the January iteration, it was still like a major point of tension between like Frankie and privacy. Even though we didn't have like a clear like, you know, I feel like it's in the sec like as the show is now, it's like way more. Like it can be read way more easily as to like why there's tension and where that tension's coming from. Like adding the police presence and like that being like an overlying like point of like confrontation for privacy and Frankie is important. Like how to really get that to say what we needed to say, which is that like yes, the Nina Bryan march was really important, um, and like it's important for some of us, and and that's okay. <laughs> so for me. It's less about it. It's less about it being Anita Bryant specifically, and more about it's any march that we're in. Because um, I think about, I think about the queer scene now, the the queer scene that I'm speaking of that I'm a part of in New Orleans. You know, there's the idea that queer people that there's this assumed. I don't know where it comes from. I'm so curious, but there's this assumed thing that because like we're all queer and like we go to the same party and like we all like fuck similarly that like our politics are similar, and I don't know where that comes from, but it's here, and it's really present, and you know, I would find that when I would go to places like Ida, for example, this queer land project that's mostly white in Tennessee that everybody goes to and loves, and it's like, oh my, you know, people would be like, it's the, you're gonna just love it, it's so amazing, it's, but every single day, you know, the black folks, <laughs> like, crazy stuff happened every day, or unbelievable stuff happened all the time, one of those things being, a DJ at a party was wearing this blackface mask that Indy and I ripped off of him during the performance. So, so you know, there's this idea that we all are on like, that we all sh have a same goal and that we all have the same politics. And for me, privacy represents, in this script, how I wrote privacy, is they are my really complicated white friend who I've had for a long time and I'm not ready to give up on yet. And they try and there are definite moments of trying and sometimes they really fail. And so for me, Frankie and privacy's relationship is really important in this show because it kind of ends on this note of a big question, like how, how do friendships look like when we bring in race into it, when we bring in like class and different backgrounds. And so, Frankie and privacy's relationship is very important to me. And so privacy kind of just completely, so what happens before the Anita Bryan scene is, as people said, privacy and Frankie have a fight and the fight is really, you know, privacy says this really messed up thing of the neighborhood has a reputation and, you know, all this stuff, which, and you know, and then there's a moment of like, oh, I didn't mean to say that, I didn't mean to say that. 
And it's a moment that as a black person, like we all have been there before. We've all been there before of like the person being like, I didn't mean to say that. And it's like, well, okay, you didn't mean to say that. And I understand that, but it's how it landed. It doesn't matter you your intention. Exactly. And you said it. And so, so that was like, like privacy is in that moment, purely a caricature, in my opinion, like a caricature of this idea that like we are all united because we are queer. I think you're talking <laughs> right. about the importance of it. I think for us that some of the elders were like, you gotta include that or you gotta talk about how the bars were not just places of dating or friendship, but of political yeah. organizing. Mm -hmm. And like, and that was, and that's something that I found a lot in the bars, like talking about Charlene's, like Charlene's was the Mecca. That was the place where you would go to get information. And you know, there's this, there's this quote from an elder who says, if you didn't go to the marches, People like Brady and Charlene, they will get up in your face and you would hear about it. And like, it's true. Like people were saying Brady sometimes wouldn't let you in the bar if you like didn't go to the march. And I think that on one hand, like that's really awesome because as queer people, like our existence is inherently political, but that's also really telling of the times and very narrow because sometimes that's not safe for people. As dangerous as it is to be queer, being queer and black, in the south who it's like a whole mountain so people like have different things yeah or trans yeah my bad queer black trans in the south like there's yeah. it's like a whole mountain and like there's there's a lot there so people have different things at stake when it comes to like showing up at a march you know i like i think about you know when um when the alton alton sterling protests just happened and i was you know talking to my friends like are, are you gonna go to baton rouge are you gonna go to baton rouge and a lot of my like black trans friends were like, I would love to, but I, A, I don't feel safe necessarily in those spaces, like very public spaces, because of the people and because of the police. So, you know, it's just this like trying to like open up and think and think about each other more so than just our like queerness and our sexuality and like think about all of our identities. And that's something that I think I love about this show because personally, I think we did a really good job of bringing in a lot of different stories and a lot of different perspectives. Because privacy in this and like being complicated, it, it, it is, is never my intention for anybody to hate privacy. Like it is my intention for people to like, privacy to me is one of the most human developed characters in the script because they're human and we're humans and these are the mistakes that we make and how do we continue to be queer and like in community and like still have these differences. And I think the last call and like this production is a really good example of like how we can do this. So you're basically feeding me my next question. <laughs> <laughs> so y'all have touched a lot on how the content of the show really unearths how white supremacy shows up in queer spaces and how important it is to have spaces that center queer and trans people of color. What does it look like to have a creative process that mirrors some of that content? How do you create an anti-racist? in this work or in, or in other work that you've done? Yeah, I think it's about, you know, who's in the room and how we're doing the thing. So being very intentional about, like, um, just, like, people's presences and stuff. Like, a, a major thing that, a major critique that we got from the January showing was that, like, oh, where's the trans feminine voices? Like, where's the trans feminine perspective? And we were like, oh, duh, of course, like, trans women were there and, like, probably a part of that scene in that community, too. Um, and that was like, and when we like went to like recast for, and to rewrite, we like immediately knew that we wanted to have like a trans feminine person like 
here. Um, so it's about like the people that's like doing the work. And I think it's also about like how you do the work too. Like a big part of the work that we do is, is, isn't just like making a thing. It's like showing up for each other. It's like allowing there to be like, you know, like more of a leeway of like time. So it's like, yeah, we have rehearsals from like six to nine, but we don't really start rehearsals until 6.30 because it takes people a long time to get to the places, especially when everyone doesn't have access to cars and everyone doesn't, and like, people like are working like full-time jobs or like doing whatever other like hustles that they have to do to get there and you get there and it's like fuck I had this kind of a day so like it's gonna take me a second to shift into like a place where I can actually be like generative and like creative and like and and to do like the work so being very intentional about the spaces that we create like making sure that like we're flexible with our people and it's <laughs> frustrating and hard from like a, di a director's point of view because like you need the people there to do the things and um, we also can't control how like the world treats people and like what situations people are in. So like trying to be understanding of that and figuring out what that balance is. And um, I think we've been like, I don't think that we have like a perfect model of like doing that at all, but it's definitely like a working model. And that's like part of what keeps me like committed to this work is that like, okay, we're like, you know, there's like an attempt and, a, and the attempt is like, it's it's sort of working it's um and there's always room for like growth and improvement but it's nice that there's an attempt especially coming from like places and like other like creative spaces where there is no attempt where people don't give a fuck about like my pronouns where like people don't care like what else i have to do if i'm not there on time i get like the side eye or i get like a talk or like you get like your pay deducted or like you get kicked out or fired um yeah, I think all the stuff that you're saying is, is so right. I feel like you've been talking a lot with folks recently about how the bars were places where people could show up and be their whole selves or mm. or like our ideal bar space is someone where it's somewhere where we can show up and be our whole self and I think that's what we try to do in our rehearsal rooms. Mm. It's not say, Okay, you come into this room but you can't be tired because you had a day or you can be in this space if you have transportation to get here, or you can be in it, but letting people be who they are and where they are, um, and knowing that identity plays a role in that. Having food, per se, I think has been a part of it. Trying, sometimes failing, <laughs> but having delicious food, but trying and making that a priority. Being really vocal and transparent about how we're trying to meet people's needs and when we're not meeting them, listening. Um, having accountability for those mistakes that are getting made and still are getting made. I think one thing that feels so basic, but that is really real, is there was a certain point at which we were like, there's mostly white folks in the room like all the time. And then we were like, we're not gonna keep making this play if it's only white people. We're not gonna have rehearsal if there's only one person of color in the room or if it's only white people, because we're not gonna keep doing that to people. Like they have to come and be the only person in the rehearsal room. When that happens, we're canceling rehearsal. And so in the run-up to the January show, we canceled rehearsals and things shifted and our room shifted and our team shifted intentionally and intentionally. And I think some in relationship to people were like, oh, this is an okay space for me to ask my friends to like come and be a part of this because they're not gonna be the only person here and I'm not gonna be the only person here. And we didn't have to cancel rehearsals this run, I don't think. Mm -mm. And also, like, if you just have two people of color in your cast, you're still tokenizing people. It's not just about number. And if one person of color can't come, 
and you're like, well, we have to cancel. Like, you just shouldn't be in a space where if one person drops out, the whole rehearsal is canceled. That puts way too much pressure on the people to show up to hold space for their whole race in the room mm. or, you know, and for me as a talkative white person, um, just to like, to really be mindful about listening. I just learned a lot just by um, watching, listening. We do a thing where we check in to say, hi, my name is pronoun. This is where I am today as I go into the work. And then at the end of the process, at the end of the time, uh, we say, I say, hi, my name is, I don't have to. <laughs> and, and just like how the being in the rehearsal together changed my day where I am now in the process. Yeah, I think that I think that the crux and the key is like trust and communication when it comes to stuff like working multiracially. Um, when Indy first in January asked me to like come on as the set designer, um, it was kind of like, oh, but I thought that was just like a white thing. Like for me, I intentionally organize, do projects, work with majority like people of color and like black people. And a big part of that is because as a writer, that's like a really vulnerable space to be with white people. Like I went to a fancy, you know, playwriting program, um, got my degree in it. And I was the only black person in my, in my entire class. And that really stunted my writing. Like I, I think that if, if there were people of color in the room, if there were black people in the room, I had black, if I had black professors, then like, you know, sometimes it, it, it makes me mad because I think about where I could be today if I had that real communication and that real criticism. You know, people don't know how, in my experience, white people don't know how to workshop, don't know how to critique black work and black voices because they're either so afraid of saying the wrong thing or they're just like, thank you so much for telling like your story. And it totally minimizes me as an artist and me as a writer. Like, it's like, yeah, I just told you my story and I told it damn well. So like, tell me what about it is good. Tell me what about it isn't, you know? And so I think with like working with Last Call, when I eventually did the rewrite of the script, it took a lot of trust, I feel like on Bonnie's and Indy's part to like trust me because we didn't really have a lot of check-ins about what you're doing on the script. Um, mostly, I mean, Bonnie tried to have those check-ins, but I was <laughs> like, don't worry, it's, it's like happening and it's gonna be good. Like, and that's also a part of like, you know, I didn't have like a steady job. I don't have like a co-working space where I can go and like write and like, like a community of people to like workshop things with. So it's my writing process is very different. And I really loved the fact that like you respected that Bonnie, like very, like very much respected that because I know like I've had other writing assignments, writing deadlines, it's like that doesn't fly in other places, you know? And I think that us being, like you being patient with me in turn made me want to, I mean, it made me want to write a better script and it also made me feel more empowered to like keep working. And it, and it made me look at this because when I first came into this project, this was a gig for me. Like this was, I'm being paid to rewrite the scripts, you know? obviously a show that like I was already invested in and like have connections to but like that's how I really saw it was this was a gig for me to come in and do this and through the process of this and through working with other people like I'm like all in for last call now you know mm -hmm. it's like I want to keep like working and like organizing because nothing's perfect absolutely nothing is perfect because 
we live in a white supremacist capitalist society. So like, it's it's never gonna be perfect, but I think just, just the fact that, you know, we have this script where there's stuff happening that like a lot of the cast members, maybe a year ago, five years ago, would have been in the audience being like, wait, why is the wig being snatched? You know, like, and to be able to have that exchange and to be honest with each other and real with each other is really, really, really important. Yeah. <laughs> I know you did a good job. Um, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna see if our lovely guest for this recording has any questions that you'd like to ask. I guess um, maybe I know the answer to this, but maybe I don't. Uh, wondering um, why there weren't characters in the 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 performance who were um, n neither white nor black, mm -hmm. maybe a mixed race character or a, uh, a Latinx character. So that uh, that's something that I question. Oftentimes when the conversation is white or black, it excludes those of us who don't belong to those groups. So I guess I was um, thinking about that while I was watching this wonderful really wonderful performance. That's something we've talked about. Yeah, it's something we've been thinking about. You know, there there were Latinx people on the scene, I know, because we've talked to some of them. Mm -hmm. Some Asians? Yeah, and Asian, Asian folks. This would be an Asian interview. There was one character that we were, we were like, oh, we could cast a white person in this role, or we could cast, and we really wanted the prevalence of bodies on stage to be black, black. we wanted to be, work with mostly black performers because of New Orleans and um, what New Orleans is, but one of the white characters, we thought, oh, this character doesn't need to be white, this character, um, and would have morphed, I think, if, if there was a different performer. But it was honestly about the performers that we found who came into the room to work now, which doesn't mean that there's not someone out there um, that we should be working with. And that is something that, as we continue with this project, I think is still going to be online. I think that's a great question, and that's something that I thought a lot about in the rewriting of the of the script. And you know, I don't, I'm I'm not a person who has any control over, you know, the casting of who of who was playing what role. And that is a conversation that we did have a lot because, like for me, I'm not from New Orleans, so. I feel like the script based on conversations and I could be totally wrong and putting my foot in my mouth but based on conversations you know like New Orleans is a largely like black and white city there's huge Vietnamese population here huge like Latina population here like obviously um, but I guess I think around like that time like that's that's like who was like at the center I guess when I was when I was doing the rewrite for this for the show the Pulse Massacre happened, and it was like this really, but like, it was it was like hard to write through it. Like that was a moment I was like, Bonnie, like, I can't write, I can't check in, I can't do this for like a couple days. Like I just like, it felt too like I'm writing about these safe queer spaces and bars, and like this this thing happens, and it happened majoritarily to Latino people, and I wrote the scene, and you know we have the moment where we create these two altars and uh, each um, we have pint glasses that represent each of the 49 that was killed in Pulse and name their names and it was a really it was a really 
jarring moment to realize that there's nobody in the cast that can say these names properly, that can like properly pronounce these names without like butchering it. And so that's where we went um, and got um, Mel, Melissa Cardona, Melissa Cardona to, to say the names because that was something that like, for me, it was a very hard boundary. Like I'm not like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that to people. I'm not gonna do that to people who are already being traumatized in this audience of like listening to this and then to be a Latina person and to see somebody who doesn't look like you <coughs> completely like butchering your name, going over these, you know, like not pronouncing these things properly. Like that was an important thing to me. And so I'm not making excuses of course, but it's, it's these little moments that like there was an attempt. And I also think it's important to recognize that, you know, mixed race also looks a lot of different like a lot of different ways um and so of course it's like black white like i'm technically like mixed race like my mother is white my dad's black but i identify as black so you know like there's also like that nuance in there of just 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 because you look a certain way doesn't mean that like that's necessarily your reality and your identity all that to say it was definitely something that we were thinking about and and something that we're continuing to think about, and I don't think that we want to like just like haphazardly like throw some like yeah. We like at least I was not on team like just like throw some like Asian or like mixed Creole <laughs> person, and we're like we don't even really know what that is. We don't really have like the, you know, or like we don't have like the person necessarily to like play that right now. And so much of the show came from like who was performing it too. Yeah. So moving forward, that is definitely on the radar. That's definitely it's been on the radar. Um, and we, and part of why what didn't show up is because we didn't want to like put it in there without the right intention and care and mm -hmm. respect. But also, I do think it's important too for us to, like, recognize in ourselves, like you just said, like, we kept like when we were recasting for the two roles, we reached out to folks and kept it very small. And it's like, if if we don't let people know, then they're not going to come. So you know, it's like the role that could have been played by anybody like that wasn't like race specific like like those sorts of things um you know we we have to let people know or else because if they don't know they're not going to come it's like when universities are like oh we only have like 0.5 percent like black professors because none of them apply they're just not qualified but it's like where are you find like where are you asking people who are you reaching out to another thing too is like how many of the cast members who are on this stage like are from new orleans you know and that's a really important thing especially when you're talking about a play that takes place in the dive bars in New Orleans, and then we're talking about just gentrification and all this stuff in the present. Y'all are the best. To close out, can y'all tell us one lesson that you're taking away from this process? Um, I, I have two things. One is like a personal thing, and one is a larger thing. And the larger thing is, I feel I feel very privileged to have been able to comb through this archive of these interviews from these elders who, a lot of them quite, quite frankly up until the show started didn't even know me. Um, and I felt very privileged to be trusted with these stories. And so I think one thing, and, and even going through these stories, just like, God, like it's endless the amount of plays that I could like write based on this. I was talking to my partner today like about, oh my God, I really wanna write a play about, you know, like they said in the interviews like, during you know in like the 80s and 90s like the lesbians they were the caretakers for like those that were sick with HIV and AIDS and like that's such an important story that like important thing that could really easily get lost and so it's so it's just these like little things that so my so one of my lessons is that 
stories are everywhere and our elders are really important and our elders are not gonna be here forever, just like we're not gonna be here forever. And it's really up to us to make sure that they do live forever and to make sure that these stories don't get lost because we all know how easily things can get twisted and lost in translation. And that's, I think, why it's beautiful that we use the direct voice over audio too because that doesn't leave any room for interpretation. That's why some people are like, why did you put that line in there? It's like, I didn't say that. That was said in the interview, you know? So it's like, so it's very much like telling their stories. And then on like my personal lesson that I've learned is at, at certain moments, like writing, like taking the script that people love so much and all of its like beautiful complications and messiness and like rewriting it. I felt a lot of fear sometimes that like, people weren't gonna like what I did, that people weren't gonna get it, that people were gonna be like, oh my God, she just has to make everything about being black and race and like, you know, like these are my like internal thoughts. And so to come to the show like every night and to like see people's reaction and to see people like understand that and to get it and to like talk to people after the show, like people of all kinds, but specifically like black people and for them to be like, thank you so much for there just to be a show where I can see myself where A, it's not like a black play, which I love black plays, but a play that's just like about being black, all black characters, because that's so rare in like theater to like have a truly multiracial and honest and genuine um, cast. But for me, a personal lesson is definitely that our stories are important too, the same way that the, that the elders are. And for me, it's a, it's a letting go of that fear that like people aren't gonna get it or people aren't gonna like it. I feel like one of the things about this process that has been the most sort of like uh, meaningful and also challenging for me is like looking at the ways that my um, my artistic practice but also my like artistic identity is tangled up in white supremacy which like of course I feel like I'm kind of always doing that uh, but there this process in particular I feel like early on like being the, the kind of like lead writer on the show and then like um, relinquishing total creative control <laughs> as like part of an anti-racist practice um, was really like I, I will just be honest that was really hard um, because like I feel like as an artist in general we want to have control over the things that we make but as a white person in particular like I think I'm used to having that control go unquestioned and go unchecked. Um, and so learning to like, uh, like loosen the grip on that a little bit and then to like hopefully engage in a process that, that feels like it's like a true sharing of power as opposed to like, I feel like I've been in processes before with, uh, with people of color where um, even if people of color are like in a role that is supposedly like in power like actually the white people are still in charge and um and so I feel like I have done a lot of internal work on this show on like kind of like unpacking some of that stuff for myself and that has been really um really beneficial for me um I think the lesson one of the many lessons that I've learned in this like whole process is um it's around like finding like trusting and um, also like finding the courage to like push back um, on things when I feel like they're not okay um, versus just like peacing out. I feel like, um, especially when it comes to like 
multiracial like spaces. Um, I'm also generally a person who tends to work primarily with and for black people. Um, at least that's like has been like my intention in like the past like few years. Um, and so part of why it even took me so long to even like come on board as a co-director person, I was like trying to find all the other ways to like still have like power and roles and like and like a say in like how the things were being shaped without actually like putting my name on something um like on this project. It's because like I didn't I didn't really know y'all. I didn't trust y'all. I was like, I don't know the queers. Like, they're paying me. That's cute. This is like interesting, like material at hand, like like source material. Like these interviews are awesome. I'm really curious about this. And again, I was at a place where I like super needed something gay and creative in my life, <laughs> like queer and creative in my life. So like all the things like started to make sense. But like, I wasn't sure. I didn't know. Um, and like what helped me to like find that like security or find like that um or to like start to trust people more and trust this process and this like community more was like in those moments where I was like, I'm uncomfortable, this needs to like shift. Everything was like, like people were like, yeah, of course, that's real, let's shift um, and let's figure it out um, together. It's like that flexibility was, and was like really important to me and like remembering that like, oh, like these things wouldn't, not to like toot my own horn or anything, but like these things, like this things wouldn't be happening if I didn't like say that. And like, and doing that kind of, like all of that came out of like, me just like saying something. So remembering the importance of like saying something when you see, like saying something when like, the things are hard to say. This has literally been the scariest thing that I've done as an artist, just to see things jump. Not from direct jump, but as soon as we started hearing the story, I was terrified. Um, and it's been a practice of uh, remembering that, it's been a practice of remembering that it's not my job to do it all, and of remembering that I can't and shouldn't do it all. Um, And, and realizing that when, it, when it's gotten released and when pieces of it have, have gotten taken and when people have been able to put their um, creative selves into the work, the work has become really powerful. And so it's both the most terrifying thing I've ever done and it's a piece that I actually feel proud of because I look at it and I see the voices of so many people that I love get released. but I feel like slowing down is like a real piece of wisdom that has come out of this process for me that like and always to put people before process people before product and I really thank you for all of the times that you have pushed back and said like hey that's not that's not okay because I think that um me personally and white supremacist culture in general like really pushes to just like go 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 hurry up get it done get a product right that's like that's what living in capitalist white supremacy does to us and for us and so the idea that we can just we can actually just pause and that uh, in a creative process oftentimes the deadlines we put on ourselves are are self-imposed mm -hmm. and that slowing down and and making space 
for each other and for and for people to show up as their full selves. Um, but that's way, 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 way more valuable. Way more valuable. Um, I just like one another lesson I feel like that I learned here too, working on this show is that clearly in New Orleans there are no dyke bars right now, and so sometimes it's hard to find that space and to like actually have these conversations in spaces that aren't super curated or facilitated and we're in New Orleans so a lot of those times when you see queer community it's at the party um, and when I say party like party like dancing and drinking like not like a you know like a bar where you're going to have a cold beer on a Friday night um, so working here it was like it's really beautiful because I feel like I'm in a dyke bar like I feel like I have that community and I feel like it's really awesome because listening to the interviews and hearing what the elders have said, like even though we don't physically have a bar within us, like we like we're replicating and like continuing on their legacy of like talking and community and like sharing and and I think even like taking that legacy like a step farther and like having like these really hard like current conversations too, like in this space. And so like we're sitting here in like Frankie's bar and it's like the last, you know, it's, it's the last day Frankie's Bar is going to be open and it's like a really bittersweet thing because like the space that has been created here is like really special and um, yeah I think that it's something that we should like be proud of and work hard to replicate these spaces in all of our lives and all of our artistic lives and to like continue to like make them better and take them a step further. That that's when you get to be on stage and just like the way that the stage is set up, the audience is with us in the bar. And so there are times where I'm on stage, but I'm just in the bar. And the spotlight's not on me and just feeling that togetherness and like how we're all in the show and how the audience changes the show just really opened my mind up to like what could be in the future. Um, if I can do it, anybody can do it. You know, I mean, it's such a cliche, but it's true. And it's because of the people who facilitated this process, because of the Bonnies and the Indies and the Jeremys and the Rachels and the Bears and the Mel's, that I could play this like nerdy little nervous, <laughs> but like sometimes horny Cajun <laughs> Dyke. Yeah. Thank you all so much for having this conversation. I have been a part of this project for a long time, but I've not been a part of this production, and I am in awe of the work that you have done, of what is on stage, but really most importantly, what was happening behind the scenes and the space that you created. Um, I'm truly in awe of that and so grateful for your work. So, thanks. Bonus recording. <laughs> Frankie here says that uh, there's a song that they would like to share with us. I'm not gonna say it. Right now. <laughs> no. I'll sing two. To be gay. Well, everybody knows who's in it. My favorite line is, I believe Barry wrote this line. Because Charlene's is nice, but we yeah, can't live in a bar. And then privacy hits this crazy high note. <laughs> <laughs>